This week we're continuing our, our look into the heart of God. And Phil introduced us to the topic by discussing some general thoughts um, uh, earlier. And then he talked a little bit about how uh, God sees into our hearts and then how he gives us his, his most valued creatures, an opportunity to look into his heart. And that's, we're looking into his heart through his son, the Lord Jesus. And, you know, there's been other brothers that have shared in the, the ministry here on the heart of God, but it's, it's nice that uh, we all have the opportunity that even if you miss uh, a meeting as, as I have, um, you have the opportunity to, to go back and to listen again. And I think we're all blessed by that ministry that, uh, that other brothers have shared. Uh, when, when Ryan put it out and asked for, um, you know, others to consider speaking about this topic, one of the things that, that caught my eye was the compassionate nature of the Lord's ministry. And when we think about the word compassionate, it's really the first word the Lord uses to describe himself. And when we look into Exodus, we see in Exodus that uh, Moses had, had broken the first set of stone tablets that the Lord had written the law on. And then God tells him, he says, be back here tomorrow. We're going to try it again. Bring back a new set of tablets and and come and, and I will meet with you. And uh, when when the Lord um, met with Moses the following day, he stood with him. I, I think that's really neat that that it tells us in Scripture that the following morning the Lord came down and he stood with him. And not only did he stand with him, he proclaimed his name. And in verse 6 of chapter 34 of Exodus, it says, He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And when we think about compassion, it's really, it's a deeply emotional word. It, it conveys a strong bond, and, and probably one of the most significant examples of that strong bond is between a parent and a child. And and we see God portrayed in Scripture as both a, a mother and a father figure, um, and and He is is shown, you know, that that He responds to the cries of His people and the deep emotional needs that they have, not just with with a, a caring and, and a concerned ear, but He responds with action. And ultimately, the compassion of Yahweh, our God is embodied in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, who lives and dies to take humanity's suffering upon himself. And the idea is that he's going to restore this bond between God and man. And as his followers, that's what we're called to do too. We are called to to act in a compassionate way towards those around us. And it might be within our own family. It can certainly be outside in our community, and and even beyond. But that's what we are called to do, is we're called to emulate what it is that God has done. And today we're going to focus our attention on a passage of Scripture in Matthew. And as we look at that, we're going to look at the compassionate heart of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. He's the one that the Apostle John called the Word. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then over in verse 4 of that same passage, we see it said that in him was life. So this beloved son of God, Jesus, 
the living word. He's the living word. He's always existed in the Trinity, and he has been there as a way to reconcile this wickedness that lives within each one of us with the holiness of God. Jesus was and he still is the answer for man's sin problem. In him, there is a kind of life that we can come through him, we can have. And it's the type of life that we can find nowhere else, and that's eternal life. The questions of sin and sacrifice and salvation were all answered in the form of a wooden cross on Calvary's hill. And that's where our Savior went, and he would bleed and die for the sins of all humanity. And he would come to bring eternal life and make it available to everyone. If you're here and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, 2 Corinthians 6.1 says that today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed what tomorrow brings, but today is the day of salvation. Well, Jesus came to earth on a mission to rescue sinners from a death penalty. We had a penalty for sin that was due us that we deserved for sinning against a holy God. And you see, God the Father and Jesus his Son looked on creation, and they had compassion. This compassion wasn't just an attitude of mercy and forgiveness or a sympathetic concern for some suffering that they saw, although it was. Compassion is more than empathy, because empathy just deals with kind of an emotional experience. But compassion really requires that somebody take action for the other person. And that's exactly what Jesus, he did for us, and he continues to do for us as he intervenes in our lives. You know, sometimes we describe people as being compassionate and understanding. And I tell you, I, I think that the best human example of compassion, and there's plenty of people I think that we could name. You could name Mother Teresa and, and many other people. But it really pales in comparison to the measure of compassion that it took God the Father to send his one and only son, not just his one and only son, but as Scripture tells us, his beloved son, his innocent son, to go to a cross to die for your sin and mine. That's compassion. And yeah, I mentioned the passage uh, in Exodus earlier, but let's just, I want to mention a couple other uh, passages from the Old Testament that talk about God's compassion. In Psalm 103, it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In Psalm 145, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Jeremiah 12, he says, I will return and have compassion on them. And then Isaiah, you see, with everlasting love, God says, I will have compassion on you. And then Lamentations 3 says, He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And before we read our our, uh, passage in Matthew today, let's go ahead and just open in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that uh, we have this opportunity to open your word, to look into it, to study it. And Father, I just thank you for the time that you've given me to uh, to look into your word and to have the time of study, Lord, and and, and uh, preparing for this message, Lord. So I just pray that it would be a real blessing to each one that would hear it, whether they're here or they hear it remotely, Lord. I just, uh, again, would ask you, Father, that through your spirit you would speak through me. And Lord, uh, just allow this time to be a real blessing for each one uh, that hears. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's go ahead, and I want to read a portion of Matthew 15, and it's going to begin uh, Matthew 15 and 21. Matthew 15, 21. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, and he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. You know, when we look at this passage here, we see that the Lord has been busy doing his father's work in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And that scripture doesn't specifically say what it was um, that maybe took him to that region. It could have been to get away from some of the crowds. It could have been that the timetable for the Lord's plan to end his earthly ministry uh, might have been interrupted. I, I'm not sure. But one thing we know is that Jesus was entering into an area where the reception might not be quite as warm as it would be within the Jewish strongholds where it really should have been welcome on all fronts, but not necessarily was. Like these places that Jesus went, God doesn't just call us to go to the easy places, to preach the gospel. He doesn't say, go where you know that they're going to listen and they're going to hear and they're going to follow willingly and joyfully. He asks us to just go and, and preach the gospel. And then let the Holy Spirit do its work. So here we have Jesus set out and he's, he walks in, he comes into the area and almost immediately, we see this Canaanite woman who is eager to see him come into his presence. And the uh, parallel passage from Mark 7, Mark doesn't refer to her as a Canaanite woman. He calls her a, a Gentile or a Syrophoenician woman. But she's not just looking for sympathy. She's looking for somebody who's capable of giving her real help. And if you look at this region today, if you look at the northern border of Israel, right across from the northern border of Israel is Lebanon. And I think everybody, if you didn't know where Lebanon was before October 7th, you probably do now. Because we've seen that since the attack on Israel on October the 7th, we've also seen that out of that northern region of, of Israel, just north of there is a city of, or is the country of Lebanon, but in that region is where Tyre and Sidon are. So those, those areas are really very close to the border of Israel, and that's where, uh, the Lord had been. Well, those areas were established long before the nation of Israel, and yet even when God had commanded the people, uh, that were with Joshua to go into the Canaanite areas and to totally destroy them, they didn't destroy that area. I mean, if, if they would have totally destroyed them as God commanded, they probably wouldn't have been there. We also see that during Elijah's time of prophesying that Elijah had to contend with Jezebel. Well, her father was a Sidonian king. So that was, that was kind of a, a bad area. And those Canaanite cities, 
uh, were, were difficult areas. But somehow, both David and his son Solomon actually had good relations with those people, so good to the point where they were given resources to help build David's, uh, his palace, and not only David's palace, but also the temple in Jerusalem. So they would use the wood and the craftsmen from those areas, and, and they were useful in building things that were part of uh, the kingdom. And so they, they still, they were not destroyed. But when you looked at those areas, I mean, they were pretty prestigious areas. These were both seaport areas. They had uh, a fair amount of money, but they had also had a history of not only their wealth, but they also had a history of pagan worship and idol worship. And some of that have, having drug Israel into it as well. And when we look in Matthew 11, we see a point in Matthew 11 where the Lord himself is using Tyre and Sidon as a way to chastise Chorazon and Bethsaida for their lack of repentance. So when when this passage begins, this lady comes in and she's crying and she's she's before the Lord and she she began and she says, please, you know, help remove this unclean spirit from my daughter. Well, the, the word that's used for her daughter, and I'm I'm going to say I hope I say this correctly, uh, the Greek word is thugatrion, and it really refers to a little daughter. So when we're thinking of this, this is not. A, a more mature young woman, but it's apparently a smaller child. And this isn't a situation here where she's saying, you know, she has a daughter that has an unclean spirit. This isn't a matter that this is a child that maybe needs a little more discipline in her life or a child that doesn't quite know how to behave. Whatever it is, this is a child that is possessed by a demon. So she has a real problem. And and we don't really know why the woman did not bring her child directly to the Lord and present her in front of the Lord and say, hey, would you please heal her? But can you imagine the whispers and the stares walking down the streets and seeing people glancing and looking at your child with maybe contempt or disgust? because of the things that she's doing, the things that she's saying, the way she's behaving and acting, and the guilt, and just how horrible that would be. Well, we see in our own lives, and we certainly see in Scripture, and the Bible tells us Satan is on the prowl. He is out to try and devour the things in our life that mean the most to us, sometimes are the most innocent and often the most vulnerable. Another aspect of this lady's problem was not just that she had a a poor child that was uh, in a difficult situation. She also had another problem is that being a Gentile, well, she was not part of that uh, lost group, the group of the lost sheep of Israel. So that ministry had not come to the Gentile world fully. Um, It would. Peter would be in that same area soon. But when this woman comes to the Lord, she's crying and she's begging for mercy. And she did something that a lot of people never do. And she called him by one of his rightful titles. And she called out to him and she said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. I know the women are doing a a, a book study on the son of David. Um, I didn't steal anything from you, the books, ladies. So, you know, your your, your secret's safe. <laughs> um, but she knew enough about the Jewish scripture 
and knew and was able to identify who this Jesus was. She knew enough that this guy was probably the Messiah, the one that had been talked about. You know, and there's other accounts that we we look at in Scripture, and we see others that call out to Jesus, and they use the same phrase. They call him Son of David, Son of David. In Matthew 9, the blind men sitting at the side of the road, two of them calling out, crying to the Lord to restore their vision. And these men call out and they say, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And then in uh, Mark 10, blind Bartimaeus also refers to uh, Jesus as the Son of David. And the one that's being spoken about here is the living, breathing, compassionate heart of God. Jesus, the one they also call the Son of David. In the beginning of Matthew 15, we see uh, that the the Lord's lack of response seems a little bit odd. And maybe if you said it's it's a little bit odd, you might even go so far as to say, I think it was downright rude because uh, of the way that he answers or doesn't answer. Because scripture tells us, says, but he did not answer her a word. Instead, the disciples jump in and they're going to save the day. They're going to do what they do best. And they're going to suggest, let's send her away. You know, did you ever notice that the disciples had a little bit of a history of, of wanting to send people away? And it's not really, and the Lord let them go. I mean, they're learning. But we see in Matthew 14, the disciples wanting to send away the 5,000. Where are we going to find enough food to feed them, Lord? You know, we don't have enough. Send them away. That's the answer. And uh, and we look into Mark 10 and Matthew 19. We see parents. They want to bring the children to the Lord. Ah, the ones that the Lord loves the most. But what do the disciples suggest? Send them away. Well, I don't think that it's because that we have a group of disciples. And I don't think if you look back historically, and one day we'll all have a privilege of meeting these disciples, we're not going to find that this was a lazy group of men. We're not going to find a group of people that were not willing to put the effort out because these were hardworking men, very hardworking. And they probably thought that what they were doing was the right thing. They were trying to do whatever they thought was right in their eyes, not necessarily thinking of things the way that the Lord would. One thing that we don't see on their part is we don't see much compassion. We don't really see even any sensitivity to the needs of this distressed woman that's come in and talked about her daughter to the Lord. Maybe the disciples were so caught up in the moment of the ministry that they couldn't see the trees for the, or the forest for the trees kind of thing. You know, they couldn't see the most obvious needs that were standing right in front of them as this woman stood there. Maybe there was a form of prejudice. You know, maybe they're, they're looking and, and thinking, how dare any Gentile come before the Lord asking for something? You know, maybe they felt like they were protecting the Lord from just this inconvenient nature of what, um, was going on at the time. I guess from a practical standpoint, if you look at it, maybe it's a reminder for us to be aware that there are plenty of times that um, there's people around us that have needs, and we want to be in tune with that, uh, kind of being in the moment, if you want to call it that, 
not worrying about, gee, is it convenient or inconvenient? Because there's going to be a lot of times that, you know, as people say, ministry is messy, but also sometimes it's not very convenient. And I think the other thing, too, is not to be so quick to close ourselves off from people that are different from us. In any case, the Lord doesn't want people sent away from him. When we think about what does the Bible say? We talk about it and we sing about it. Emmanuel, God with us. Well, how can God be with us if the disciples keep jumping in and saying, send them away, get them out of here. We don't want these people here. Well, um, we know that that doesn't curtail the, the Lord's ministry. But this encounter with this Canaanite woman is, is really, is, is kind of interesting. Because Jesus answers his disciples and he says, he said, hey, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, if Jesus wanted to reject this woman because she was a Gentile or because he didn't want to be bothered, this is the perfect time. So he's already said the lost sheep of Israel, she's not one of them, get her out of here. But that's not what he does. You see, it's, it's interesting because when Matthew wrote this book, he was showing the Jews of Israel that Jesus was the Messiah and he was the one that was coming. And yet the religious leaders and many of the people still rejected him. And Jesus may have come into this region just because he was excited by the fact that this woman had a lot of something that was not there among the Jewish people. She at least had the faith to come to him. And many of them were still busy rejecting him. And one thing about this woman we know is that regardless of what the Lord was saying about the lost sheep of Israel, she was persistent. She was not going to back away. As a matter of fact, she was desperate to save her child. And when you think about it, any mother that's sitting in here or anybody that's had a mother, and I think that includes all of us, And you think about that, and a persistent and desperate mother is never going to be turned away when it comes to the welfare of her child. It just is something that's very difficult to to wrap your head around when you think about how desperate this woman was. Well, she knows who Jesus is, and she has enough faith of what he can do. And then, through all of her heartache, she comes closer. The Lord said, I was only come to the lost sheep of Israel. And then she comes closer and she kneels down and she pleads with him. Three words, Lord, help me. You see, when I read those three words, I can't help but think of Israel uh, or of uh, the, the trials that we have all faced during our lives. And in times of desperation, when we too call out, we say, Lord, help me. We think maybe of of somebody begging, in this case, this woman, she's begging for her helpless daughter. She's not begging for something for herself. She's petitioning the Lord to do something. She's beseeching him to do something that she is not capable of doing for herself. Many of us that know the Lord as Savior have called on the Lord, and we have said, Lord, help me. When we think about the salvation of a loved one, when we think about the healing that might be needed for a loved one, And as a result, we can easily relate to the struggle that this woman was having before the Lord. Now, if the Lord's lack of response for the the first encounter with her uh, seemed a little bit odd, this second one is going to not get much better. Because Jesus says, 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you think, I mean, the first time I read that, you know, and I, I, I can't tell you how long ago I read it, I thought, that's crazy. How can the Lord refer to these people as dogs? But he did. Well, it's difficult to understand, but if you look at it in terms of the Lord's ministry, it's not. It begins to make sense. The Lord actually did have compassion on her. He understood the woman's dire circumstances. He was actually testing her faith and helping her to see that he had an order of ministry. He's telling her right there what the the order of his ministry was, was first to the, the people of Israel. And these were not words that the Lord said. He didn't say it in a flippant way. He didn't say it in a way to cause her harm. He didn't say it in a way to embarrass her. The word that Jesus actually used when he talks about the, uh, the, the dogs is another Greek word. Here we go. Uh, kunarian, I think. And it means a little puppy. And I don't know how many of you have had dogs. I've had dogs in my life probably my entire life with the exception of maybe 10 years. And so a little puppy is a whole you know, new ball of wax. You get a puppy in the house, and a puppy is somebody that you love on, you nurture, you care, you feed, you brush, you attend to. You do all these things. It's like a domesticated pet. It is not this slanderous rebuke that the Gentiles sometimes used as they were addressing people that were Gentiles. You know, this woman, actually, she submits to the Lord. She says, okay, I agree with your characterization of the Gentile people. And she says, yes, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And so, you know, she didn't really want a lot. She wanted a little something, and she came with a right heart. She came humble and contrite, seeking mercy seeking compassion for what was her most valued possession. Jeremy, I know uh, he and I have been in the position of camp director for Whitewater Bible Camp, and one of the things I think we all understand when you're in that position is that you are taking in people's most valued possession for a period of six days or so, and you're going to attend to them and you're going to care for them. That is a huge burden to carry. But we know that this woman's possession is just as great as the possessions that we have in our children. You see, she wanted a small blessing, and she knew that there were many Gentiles that were just like her that would have been happy to have a few of the spiritual crumbs that the Jews so quickly discarded. And many of the Jews rejected the Messiah, and in their rejection, maybe she looked at it and thought, you know what? Maybe I can get a little bit of what they're throwing away. Well, rather than leaning into the Savior of the world, this woman's Jewish counterparts relied on their heritage as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in her persistence and insight, she actually was able to accept her position as merely a Gentile. She knew that she wasn't from the house of Israel. She knew she had no real claim to what Jesus was offering, but even as a Gentile, the one thing that she seemed to not lack was hope. And her family heritage may have been enemies with the God of Israel 
over over a period of history, but she came to him knowing that he was the only one who could do something about her situation. And I like the this this next little passage here because we see a transition. And in in verse 24, it says here that it says he answered her that I was only sent to the lost children. And then in verse 26, it says again, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And then in verse 28, we see this shift in the way that God, that uh, God's son, Jesus, is responding. And it says, then Jesus answered her. Now, the redeemer of all mankind is speaking directly to her. And this woman who was willing to seize any opportunity for the Lord's blessing was about to have her life and the life of her child changed dramatically after this brief encounter. In verse 28, it goes on, it says in the entirety, it says, Then he answered her and said, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was immediately healed. Can you imagine for one minute the thrill that this woman who had humbly come before the same Lord who came to seek and save the lost, he had made a pronouncement and a demon fled from her daughter and she was immediately healed. Mark in his, uh, his corresponding passage in chapter 7 goes into a little bit more detail. And it says that when, when she went home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. In John Phillips' commentary, he talks about this violent demon who had possessed this little girl. And the word for lying, when she was found lying on the bed, means really that she had been thrown across the bed by that departing demon. And when that de- that demon left, it left because it had to. It left at the word of the Savior. He spoke and that demon fled. And you couldn't deny that. And this demon left the same way other ones did when they were evicted by the Lord. They left in a fit of rage. And we will look back at what took place in that short passage of Scripture. It seems like maybe the Lord really didn't have much other business in Tyre and Sidon other than to to be there at just the right time when this Gentile woman showed up and to have one purpose, and that was to restore her daughter. Let's take a a look at the next part here, and I'm going to continue reading in uh, verse 29 of Matthew 15, and I'll read to the end. It says, Jesus went from there, and he walked uh, aside the the Sea of Galilee, and he went up to the mountain and, and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called the disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with him for three days and have had nothing to eat. Jesus said, I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough food 
and such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And after they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides the women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. And so we see now that the Lord has left this area of, of Tyre and Sidon. He's gone down into the area of the Decapolis that's uh, around the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this area had a, a fairly strong Roman influence because there was, there was probably Roman soldiers that had fought in various wars and were, uh, were living in that area. And there were also Jews in the area, but they were maybe a little bit more of a silent minority. And if you recall the last time that Jesus was in this area, he did something very similar that he just did with the lady who had the possessed child. He was doing the same thing. He was removing demons. He was casting out demons. You see, in Matthew 8, he tells us about this account. There's two demon-possessed men that are living in the tombs and just creating absolute havoc among themselves and anybody that would pass by. And and so we see what happens is Jesus has an encounter with these men. And as a result, he calls the demons out of them. He casts them into a herd of pigs. The pigs run down a steep hill and into the sea, and they're drowned. And at that point, you'd think that everyone would be happy. A win-win. These two men, they've been healed. People don't have to worry about walking by there anymore because now these men are no longer a nuisance. The men should have been praising God for what he had done. But instead, we read in verse 34 in that passage, it says, but they begged Jesus to leave the region. You know, this time when Jesus shows up, it's quite a different scene. You see, he ascends up the mountainside with the disciples and they they sit down. And as they go about doing what they're doing, people begin to bring the sick and the lame and the blind and all kinds of people. And they lay them at the feet with a hope. I mean, that's a lot of work just on a hunch that maybe Jesus can do what he says. I think this is... It takes a lot of commitment to do what these folks did, to bring all these folks, to bring them to be healed. You know, in these miraculous events, we can see how Jesus meets the physical and the spiritual needs of those who are willing to to follow, that are willing to listen, that those who are willing to learn. He taught spiritual truths, and he also fed them with the living word of God. Jesus was the one that was feeding them. He healed their broken and lame spirits as he taught them. And he also healed their broken and lame bodies. Now, Jesus knew their problems, and he was the one who could do something about them. And after Jesus healed and ministered to these people, and he meets the needs of these folks, he says, I have compassion on this crowd. You see, these people had been with the Lord now for... Three days, not really eating, not really drinking. They had been there, 
And in the middle of that, Jesus is now getting ready to do something, something special. He's going to lay out a huge spread of food when there's nothing around. And even though the disciples had recently seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, where they asked that great question, where are we going to get food to feed these people? They asked the same question again. And so this time Jesus asked, he says, okay, how much do you have? And so they were able to bring forth what they had, the seven loaves and the few small fish. And again, we're told that Jesus fed over 4,000 people, men, women, children, and I said, Jesus was not willing to send these people away. It, again, just shows the compassionate, caring, loving nature of our Lord. He was not willing to send these people away hungry. He said, they're going to faint. They're not going to make it home. They've been with me for too long now. So as he began, uh, Jesus had the people sit down on the ground, and he does uh, this wonderful miracle. And what we see, I think, is really important because we see the Lord, taking what they had, he puts it in his hands. He multiplies it. He makes it become something special. And he is the only one that's capable of doing what he did. And then he puts it into the hands of the disciples and tells them, go now. Go and feed them. And so he does that. They lay this wonderful feast out. And it says not only did they eat, they were they went beyond eating to the point of being satisfied. I think when we each left here last night, we were satisfied. I know I was. And so we have that. It wasn't just getting a small bit that they got. Everybody got a little tiny something. This was feeding to the point of being satisfied and satisfied to the point that there was leftovers and not just some, but a lot of leftovers. So we see the Lord, they had, and, and, um, the previous passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000, they said that there's 12 baskets of leftovers. Well, if you look at the word that they're using there for baskets, it's a little different than the one that's used here where it says seven baskets. That one for 12 would maybe, let's say, the equivalent of a lunchbox, 12 lunchboxes. So, you know, not a tremendous amount of food as opposed to seven, if you think of a case like a footlocker, that people would store all their their possessions in. And if we got seven of those, they're filled with all the leftovers. And it's an amazing amount. The abundance of what God provides is still in this passage. And when Jesus began to multiply that, you know, he wasn't dealing with the same physical limitations that we have. He was the one who created the bread. He's the one who created the food. So could he do more with that? Absolutely he could. And the lesson that we see out of this is that there's divine arithmetic and divine resourcefulness because it seems like when the Lord had things in his hand, he could multiply them far beyond what anybody would ever expect, feed many people, and still have an abundance of leftovers. And that's the way God God fills us, not just a little bit, but he fills us abundantly. You know, this group that had gathered on the mountainside, they were mainly Gentiles, but they really weren't that much different than this Gentile woman that had a daughter that was tormented by these demons. See, they were both outside the covenant of God 
and that God had with the, the people of Israel. It, they were not really that much different. You see, the Lord had his eye on the, the Gentile people. It wasn't like he had never realized that there were Gentiles in the world. You know, Matthew, who was a Jew, writing to Jews about the Jewish Messiah, he was not going to let the, the readers, you know, forget that God's looking at the Gentile world as well. And this group uh, was was given the great compassion of God as he healed the lame, restored the sight to the blind, loosed the tongue of the mute. They heard him and saw him for three days in this 72-hour marathon of ministry. And you have to kind of wonder, it's like, this wasn't a brief encounter, but at that point, are you really going to go back to the false gods that you'd been worshiping for so long before? I, I, I would think not. You know, even though um, the Lord's ministry was still primarily to the Jews, John Phillips put it very uh, succinctly. He said the hourglass of opportunity for the Jews was fast running out. You know, when we look at this and we see this woman that came just looking for a few little crumbs, a few little spiritual crumbs, and then we contrast that with the feeding of the 4,000, you see that abundance. And she too was blessed abundantly from the Lord. Even though she wanted only a little, God was faithful. The Lord Jesus provided for her. And his compassion went far beyond just the compassion for the human needs that we have. He saw that these folks were spiritually lost. They, yeah, they had physical needs. They had emotional needs, but they were spiritually lost. And he brought hope to their lost eternal state. And when you think about it, you know, this hope has a name and it's the name that's above all other names. And that's Jesus. Now today is the first Sunday of Advent. And I think about the compassionate heart of God and, you know, you can never Think about the compassionate heart of God without thinking that he delivered his son to be the deliverer of a sin-filled world. You know, God didn't bring his son into the world because we deserve salvation. He brought his son into the world because it was the only way we could have salvation. Jesus came. He died as a substitute for each one of us. And he did that because of the compassionate heart of God. And and what we see and what we know and what we look forward to, as Ryan talked about it before, was that we we may not have spoken it during the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's coming back. And we look forward to that second time when the Lord shows up and takes those who know him as Savior to be with him in heaven. Before we close our time in prayer, I, I found this... Um, Yesterday, I was looking for just a, a, a thought to share at the end of the message. And I want to read this, and it, it's uh, it's called He Truly Cares. And it was written by a guy by the name of Peter Grigg, who's a senior pastor in Britain. And he uh, relates a story, and he uses quotes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew. In that book, a boy named Diggory begs the lion, Aslan, 
to give him something to make his dying mother well. It's a heart-rendering request, a prayer of desperation. And yet, at the time, Aslan appears to ignore it completely. He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes, and he was also horribly afraid that the lion might say no. But he was taken aback when he did neither. But a while later, Diggory asked the lion to help him one more time. He thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes that he had and how they were all dying away. A lump came to his throat and tears to his eyes, and he blurted out, But please, please won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. And now in despair, he looked at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he himself was. Diggory's prayer remained unanswered, but everything had changed. Now he knew that that great lion, in whom all his hopes were resting, truly cared. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, as we have looked into this study and thought about the compassionate nature of your son, the Lord Jesus, Lord, the one thing we can take away from this, Lord, is just as uh, I just read, the thought that he cares. And Father God, we thank you for that loving Savior who cared so much and anticipated the coming to earth, Lord, to save mankind and restore the relationship that we could have with you, holy God, and it could only be done through your son and his death on the cross. We thank you, dear God, for that. We thank you for our time uh, today. We just ask, Lord, that as we separate and leave, that you would watch over, give care to each one as we would travel, Lord. Bring us back together again as your will is. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.